10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Now, everything was working perfectly before the show. <laughs> and then as soon as I started the show, nothing's working. But never mind. We're here. We're live. Good morning. I'm Mal Krishnasamy and welcome to my 30th breakfast show. That's how long we've been going. We've been going for about 33 weeks now. Um, coming up, we've got special guest Fiona Miller, and we'll be discussing the political UK political party conferences um, and their educational uh, policies. It's Monday morning. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and we are live. lovely is when I see familiar names in the studio. Uh, Nathan, welcome. Good morning, Nathan. Um, welcome, Tom Rogers. Welcome, TSCW. I still don't know your name. I still want to know your name. I want to know who you are, TSCW, because you are a regular, a regular listener to many of our shows on Teachers Talk Radio. Now, speaking of which, yesterday, I've been packing. I have been packing up the house um, and because we're moving to Spain. And so I had Teachers Talk Radio on in the background the whole day, pretty much. And wow, the shows were just fantastic. I was listening to Graham yesterday. I didn't listen to all of them. I missed... Uh, I think we'll say be on in the morning. I think, no, she's on next week. Um, I listened to Graham and that was just, I actually stopped packing and just started listening. Because <laughs> Graham is fantastic, uh, a great listen. And he was talking about um, working with your partner in the same school, something I've done, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> As I'll leave it there. Uh, I did end up calling in because I just had to get it off my chest. Um, Khalil was on 
uh, straight after Graham, and he was talking about Black History Month and the curriculum. And I learned a few new few things. New, bleh, can't speak in the morning. I learned a few things there. Um, that was really interesting. And talking about the curriculum, and Khalil's just so calm uh, and great to listen to, and um, wonderful to hear his little boy's uh, own song that he created which is lovely um and then i listened to hyrene um Harine, and um it's always fascinating listening to Harine because she talks about african education what's what are the hot topics there and it's what's interesting is that it's not that different in terms of the key topics like teacher well-being and yesterday we were talking about how um how what's the word i'm looking for how teachers are respected in africa and or not <laughs> there's not enough respect um there's not enough um kudos given to teachers out there and it was very similar conversations we would have in the uk uh, and probably in america as well but what really struck me was when herine talked about her mum uh, who was also a teacher, head teacher, I think. Um, but listen back. It was, I mean, it was only about a, a couple of minutes when she talked about her mum, but I was in absolute awe. I couldn't believe it. Her mum sounds absolutely amazing. Um, almost brought me to tears. That's what, mind you, it doesn't take much. But, um, yeah, absolutely amazing so those three shows that I did, just three shows I listened to and they were fantastic so if you missed them you can listen back on www.ttradio.org um slash listen back so all our shows are on there and yeah listen back if you missed anything now my mouse isn't working oh yeah hang on that would help if I switch the mouse on. Okay. So today's show, we're talking about the political parties in the UK and their party conferences. Um, and we've got Fiona Miller coming in and she's an educational uh, journalist. I really don't have my words today. Educational journalist and used to be special advisor to Cherie Blair and then Tony Blair. Um Yesterday's big news was Catherine Burble Singh, head teacher of the Michaela Free School in Wembley, London, near where I used to live, actually. Um, she's dubbed the strictest head teacher in the UK. She's been appointed social mobility chief. Um, are we moving away from Zars? She was on... Um, Tom Rogers' show a couple of weeks ago, and that's had our highest listening figures. I had a look, Tom. Uh, had our highest listening figures uh, this month or in the last month. Um, because I suppose she's seen as a controversial character. 
And when I was listening, I was at, astonished, <laughs> actually, um, to find that I pretty much agree with nearly everything she said. So um, it kind of makes me think maybe some of what she puts out on Twitter is for attention maybe but I you know she's done an amazing job in an area like Wembley um it's in Brent Council one of the poorest areas in London and the school has got one of the highest results in the country so making her social mobility chief on the surface to me sounds well that sounds like a great idea um but on Twitter last night (laughs) Um, one person likened uh, the head teacher of Michaela to the Nazis and the Holocaust. Really, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't even have words for that. That just, no matter what you think of a person, um, you may not agree with her. Some of her tweets, I just think, oh, come on, I don't agree with that. Um, she does have a go at woke culture. She is on the right of centre. She might be a bit further right. I don't know um, from some of the tweets she puts out. But actually listening to her, talking to Tom and her views, I thought, actually, she's all right. Actually... I can get on board with that idea. Um, I surprised myself because I was ready to have my back up. But um, no, I, I thought she was lovely. <laughs> uh, quite interesting listening to. So if you haven't listened to that show, do listen back. It's one of our featured shows. So you can just go on the homepage of the website, www.ttradio.org. Um, and it's on the front page. You can see Tom Rogers with... Um, Catherine Burble sing yeah calling her a Nazi too far too far Now, Tom Rogers always says, don't mention it when you've done, you know, the tech goes wrong. I can't help myself. <laughs> I really can't help myself. Um, I was like that as a teacher. Oops, done that wrong. Okay, so it's Black History Month. We're 11 days in. Um, and Black History Month, I have a, a strong relationship to this because 20 years ago, I, when I started teaching in my first school, um, when I started my second year, I thought, that's it. I'm going to create a Black History Month. I was working in a school with around 75, 80% English as an additional language. We had a lot of um, Black African and Black Caribbean, uh, Somalian kids in the school. Um, there's a strong community in the area in Southall in west london and i thought i've got to do something here because let's face it our uh history curriculum was pretty white pretty um yeah pretty english uh white english um and the reason why i thought 
about doing that at the school was because in my training year, uh, uh, when I was training to be a teacher in my first school placement, Ellen Wilkinson in Ealing, um, they did a Black History Month. And it was incredible. I've talked about it before on the show. But um, what I found really fascinating were was children that um well there's two sides to this part of it was black history month and part of it was seeing different sides of children that i'd never seen before so children that let's say were challenging in the classroom i mean i was in my first year you know first few weeks of teaching so they would have well i think they would have been challenging anyway to be fair um they were amazing on stage and brought me to tears like I said it doesn't take much but they were phenomenal and seeing them be part of something and um, the whole community the whole school community with tears in their eyes I thought yeah I want to I want to recreate that at the school I'm at because I love I love the school that I was in in my first two years so um i said i'd like to do this and what i was surprised at was the resistance um and i had several staff members black staff members come up to me and say oh it's great what you're doing but you know look out for the resistance and i thought that they were being a bit paranoid but then (laughs) then i did come up against it um the head teacher asked me to, there was going to be an uh, African Caribbean parents forum or something where they came in and the head teacher said, well, as you're doing this, what it is, uh, you know, let uh, do a speech to tell them what you're doing. I was like, oh yeah, great. So I'd written this speech and uh, I gave it to her to check it and she said, oh, I'll have a look. And then it got brought to me by a secretary and it was just covered in red pen <laughs> I, well since that day I've never used red pen again because I looked at it and it just looked so aggressive and horrible just no don't say this don't say that I mean let's say out of a hundred lines only 20 lines were left and I was incensed <laughs> and I wasn't saying anything to me didn't seem controversial at all but it just felt like the school was just pussyfooting around and just worried about oh we don't want to um rile up people we don't upset people we don't uh, you know uh so be me uh I went to see the head teacher now looking back now I'm thinking uh I was only I just finished my NQT year so I went in to see her and um, I wasn't aggressive or anything. I just said, look, you know, I could see here you've got all these red marks, which, firstly, horrible. Uh, and secondly, you know, I, I don't understand why I can't say this stuff. You know, it just, I feel like you're um, putting a, a gag on me. And, oh, I don't know, me and technology this morning. Um yeah, so she ended up admonishing me like I was a child. Um, and after I left her room, I was a mixture of angry and upset. So um, mainly upset, actually. And that night I was supposed to give this speech 
just before, about 10 minutes before I went up to say whatever, I still had my original speech, um, my line manager said, oh, the head teacher said you can say whatever you want to. Want to. I was like, what? Okay. And what was really interesting was that the bits that were originally crossed out, like where I was saying uh, black African and Caribbean boys um, don't do as well as other boys, in the school, um, the he- uh, the parents were nodding. And it, uh, I can't remember, it was a long time, it was about 20 years ago now, but at certain points where a few spontaneously clapped. Um, and I just found that really interesting because it's what the parents finally were hearing what they needed to hear and were grateful for hearing it. But school leaders were genuinely afraid they were genuinely afraid and um yeah that was really interesting and after that speech i organized an event where teachers students in all years were singing dancing one read out the martin luther king speech with real passion uh one of the teachers um he explained where he was from and that he spoke Yoruba and it's a language that, and I've never forgotten this, what he said, it's a language that's never been written down. So it's it's only still alive through word of mouth. So passed on from generation to generation. And he sang a song in it and got us to, uh, the whole audience to sing along with him. Um, it was brilliant. It was about one hour and it was just a joyful, joyful event. The kids and the staff loved it. And every day afterwards, the kids were like, oh, Miss, really loved that, really loved that. You know, it was really great. Um, But it was amazing how much resistance I had with that. and, And the leaders were being quite tentative about it. In my second school, I ended up leaving that school, not because of that, but, you know, I wanted to be head of history and there wasn't that opportunity at the school I was in. But at my next school, it's head of history, new school, new role, so much going on in September. Before I knew it, it was the end of September. And I was like, oh, it's too late to organise an event. Um, but myself and uh, this other member of the history department, we... We got up early on the first day that was October in the school and we went to the main hall and I had all this Black History Month quotes and pictures and um, all kinds of sayings and all kinds of stuff. And he had all these albums and uh, Black African and Black Caribbean arts and all kinds of stuff. And we covered the hall in it. There wasn't any white space. (laughs) There wasn't any space at all. We absolutely covered the hall in it. And um, the hall is a kind of place where it was like a thoroughfare, where everybody in the school went through it at least once in the day. And... I had kick the kids knew it was the history department. They they could just tell. And they just going past my classroom, popping in and going, Miss, the hall looks great. 
hundreds of kids going past um, saying that. And I ended up with a lunchtime club of kids who just wanted to talk about their culture and their history. Um, And I thought, we've got to do something about this because it, it was like it was all damned. It was like the dam had been opened and um, they they were just desperate to talk about it. So we created a magazine and it was edited by six formers. We had articles from all years. I had uh, prizes for the best poem. I think Kyan Prince actually, um, I know he wrote a poem because I still got, I still got the magazine. I think he may have won uh, a prize. Um, but it was just, it was, it was wonderful. And the impact it had on those children was huge. So it, it does sort of, it, it's, I don't know, it's interesting really, because people today tend to say, oh, we don't need a Black History Month. You know, it's very tokenistic. But the impact that I've seen in those two schools, well, three schools, because of my um, training year as well, was huge for the children felt more, these are their words, they felt more part of the school. And um, in my next school, I became a senior leader. I didn't have the capacity to do it. The history department were white English and they felt uncomfortable organising a Black History Month. Um, I, I found that a real shame. And after that, every year after that, that it wasn't done I I felt guilty (laughs) I felt guilty that it wasn't going on um but there is controversy around Black History Month um on Twitter as usual thoughts are quite polarized some say it's tokenistic and insulting others say it's a necessity I'd love to know what you think does it is Black History Month a thing at your school has it completely passed you by um, I mean, personally, I saw firsthand the impact Black History Month had on the students at my school. There was an energy, a sense of belonging created. When I was at school, my home life was completely separate to my school life. No one, not one teacher asked me about my culture, my background, my heritage, anything. Um, And it made me realise that this is how the young people in the schools I was in felt until we did Black History Month. We made a big deal of it. For the first time, home and school merged. And it gave them a sense of belonging. But this is almost 20 years ago now. Do we really still need a Black History Month? Haven't things changed in 20 years? In Khalil's show yesterday, he said Black History Month started in the UK in 1987. 1987. Um, I was still at school. I was in third year, year nine. I was in year nine then. And um, I'd never heard of Black History Month. It was definitely needed then. Absolutely needed then because uh, it wasn't really talked about. I don't remember, I don't even remember studying slavery. I don't remember anything. I mean, history was, apart from in my, um, when I was in year nine, it wasn't really great the way it was taught. Um, and 
yeah, the curriculum, if, if I think about the curriculum, it, British history is very much linked to global history. And if I think about true diversity, it should be a golden thread running through out the entire curriculum. Because British history is so intrinsically linked to the rest of the world, well, most of the rest of the world. Um, I also have an issue with the name black history, because what about the rest of us? <laughs> um, I mean, when I did it, yeah, I mean, I included Asian history. I mean, Asia is such a huge continent, but yeah. Um, there are lots of schools now that are overhauling their curriculum. There's a fantastic book by Benny Cara on diversity in the curriculum and how, and it shows that it shouldn't just be an add-on. It should be like, if you're teaching the industrial revolution, you can't teach it without the context of how slavery enabled Britain to become rich. If you're looking at that trade triangle, the slave triangle, without the slaves, the triangle couldn't have happened. Um, if we're looking at science, you know, words like alcohol, um, anything that begins with al, is Arabic. We wouldn't have, if we're looking at maths, a lot of the great mathematicians were Indian. Uh, the zero was created by Indians. There's a lot of things we can't do without the zero. Um, if we think about uh, some of the more creative uh, areas, like designing technology, traffic lights were created by uh, a black American. A lot a lot of history has been whitewashed. That's that's the problem. It's written, you know, they always say history is written by the victors, and victors were usually white. So, yeah, so it, it just makes you think there's so much scope out there of how we could incorporate more diversity in the curriculum that isn't a complete departure from say British history or science or whatever it is part of its world history this is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods this is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News Schools are being told to stockpile dry and tinned foods in the event of an ongoing shortage. Food supply company ISS have issued the warning following the continued lack of HGV drivers in the UK. It is thought supply chain issues could last until February, with school kitchens being asked to have a two-week backup supply of non-perishable food products as a contingency plan. Education unions are pushing for the reinstatement of mask policies across schools. The latest statistics show that 1 in 15 children in school years 7 to 11 are estimated to have had Covid in the last seven days. 
the highest rate of positivity for any age group. Unions feel this leaves secondary schools particularly vulnerable. No action has been taken, but the new Education Secretary did not rule out the return to masks in classrooms. At a conference this week, Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi said there were not enough black-haired teachers working in English schools. He said he thinks it is critical that teaching is an inclusive profession where leadership teams reflect their communities. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Welcome back. Uh, we've got quite a number of people in the studio. So um, we're talking about Black is well. We've been talking about Black History Month, and it's interesting that Nadim Zahawi, uh, the UK Education Minister, uh, he says there aren't enough Black um, head teachers in this country. Now, Nadim Zahawi, he he's had an interesting weekend, hasn't he? Um, <clears throat> I listened to his speech the other day and um, his own personal story is really quite interesting. He was born in Iraq in 1967. His family escaped Saddam Hussein's reign uh, and came to Britain. <clears throat> Sorry, oh, like my throat is like, I don't know what's happening to my throat. Um yeah, so escaped Saddam Hussein's reign and came to Britain. So he was about 10 years old when he came, not a word of English. And now he's the education secretary. I mean, that's that's quite impressive, isn't it? I mean, it's a shame he's a conservative. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Tom Rogers isn't going to like that. But, yeah, I think that's quite a... a that's an impressive story to come so far. Um, now, what he's what he's been saying, he was at a, um, giving a speech at the National Association of Head Teachers Conference on Saturday, and um, somebody his response to a question on diversity and leadership was: "School leadership is not representative when it comes to race, and as you say, there aren't enough black head." teachers i'd go further and say there aren't enough black leaders in the civil service and higher echelons i can never say that word echelons 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 of departments across government and we need to do better there as well zahawi added i really do think that it's critical that teaching is an inclusive profession Schools and their leadership teams should reflect their communities and their pupils, and I'm absolutely determined to see improvements. That sounds good so far, doesn't it? You know, he, he's saying all the right things there. A head teacher then asked him, uh, I would like to know what you are committed to doing to remove barriers to leadership and to increase diversity. Um, and he said... His response, current levels were not good enough, he said. I want us to make sure that we continue to encourage more black and ethnic minority candidates into the profession. 
That was his response. He doesn't say how. <laughs> he said the why. Um, he hasn't said what or how things are going to change. We know there's an issue in this area because the numbers have hit. It's, it's crazy. He says the right things like schools need to reflect the communities that they work in. Um, but he hasn't said how at all. As an aside, as an earlier, he, I was quite <laughs> shocked to read this actually, and I don't teach anymore, but like it said, uh, the article I was reading said that earlier at the NAHT, uh, delegates had voted overwhelmingly to oppose any attempts by the government to remove the 1,265 hour annual cap on teachers' directed time workload. The idea that the government is even considering removing that cap is appalling because although you've got the 12,000 odd hours of directed time, teachers probably do just as many hours on top of that uh, in their own time. So this is what I just don't understand because, you know, again, it was Tom Rogers' show when he had, oh, you'll have to tell me who, what his name was. Was it Andrew Schleicher from OPEC? He had him on and he was talking about how in Japan and Finland, their teaching load is about 16 hours a week tops, but the rest of the time they've got time to really plan more effectively and have time one-to-one with certain students and yeah there's a lot of time for the teachers to develop themselves professionally we don't have that time in this country it just seems to have less and less time over the last 20 years that i i've been in education um and the idea that they're going to remove this cap you know it's I just, are they trying to just, what are they trying to do? <laughs> what? How are they expecting results? How are they expecting teachers to stay in the profession? Um, I mean, recruitment retention is quite a, a real issue in this country, let alone, um, yeah, adding more time. And the last year and a half has been quite hellish for teachers uh despite what the daily mail says they have been working constantly non-stop over the last 18 months it's been hard it's been really tough um amy lassman the head of nelson mandela primary school in birmingham said the proposal said to be under consideration reeks of disrespect for the profession too right we cannot use teachers to fill a gaping hole in the government's failing tuition policy she said uh, she said i absolutely agree i mean that's that is probably it that this is about uh the government's tuition policy i mean tuition is supposed to be separate from teaching teachers don't have time to do tuition as well on top of what they're doing and for no extra pay um but if they're extending if they're thinking about extending hours then 
they'll get teachers to do it and that just i think that'll just break quite a number of people Welcome back. So um, we're talking about, we've been talking about Black History Month. We've been talking about um, Nadim Zahawi, our new, the UK's new education minister. And, um, and when Fiona Miller comes in at eight o'clock, we'll be talking about the different political parties in the UK and their educational policies. Now, in his Conservative Party conference speech, the Prime Minister said the best staff would get 3,000 tax-free salary boost from the levelling up premium. We are, he said, we are announcing a levelling up premium of up to £3,000 to send the best maths and science teachers to the places that need them most. Under the new scheme, teachers in the first five years of their careers will be able to get the payments if their specialist subject is maths, 
physics, chemistry or computing. Um, I'm a bit confused by that because on the because is that a golden handshake? It, it sounds like an amalgamation of two different policies. One, the golden handshake if you do uh, teacher training in maths, physics, computing, and then complete your NQT year in a school, uh, which my other half did. He, he was a maths teacher. Um, he then got a golden handshake, meaning... I think it was something like six grand or something, six thousand pounds, something like that. Um, but then he's also saying if you're in about sending teachers to uh, specific areas that are deprived, for example. So how do they work that out? Do they? Is it a postcode thing that if you're in a postcode, and how does that work? Because within a postcode. Like I worked in Ealing, and Ealing on the West London, Queen of the Suburbs, but it on if you went, it's an area that is quite affluent, but also has incredibly deprived areas within Ealing. So I, I'm not sure how that works. I don't understand. Sam Friedman, uh who's a former advisor at the Department for Education, told BBC Radio 4's The World at One, it is a policy that existed, was introduced in 2018, lasted a couple of years and then was scrapped. So this is actually a kind of U-turn and they are bringing it back in a slightly tweaked form, which is certainly welcome because we have a serious recruitment problem and retention problem with teachers. So that um, that this may do a small amount to help with, but it is not a new policy. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? So it's not a new policy, so they're recycling, but I have several issues with this um, announcement, if you like. Firstly, who says deprived areas already don't have the best teachers? Every school I worked in was in a deprived area of London. And it had some of the best teachers I've ever worked with. And actually, if you're not in a deprived area and you don't have to um, pull out all the stops in your teaching, you can get quite lazy. Um, I'm not saying that if you work in an affluent area, you are a lazy teacher. I'm just saying that when I've come across affluent schools that my kids briefly went to a, a private school because there was no school places in the area when we moved here and I was um I was unimpressed <laughs> at the teaching <laughs> and um yeah the general they just yeah because teachers can af um because the students parents can afford tuition if the kids aren't doing well so that you know they know that the kids will pick up the slack somehow somewhere um so i have an issue with this idea of the best teachers going to deprive being sent to deprived areas i think that and i do remember that when i was working in one particularly deprived area uh in west london in hillingdon when the school i mean we needed to um but we 
brought in about 20 teach firsts and there was a kind of resentment that teach first are flying in um and they all happen to be white 20 white people <laughs> coming in as white saviors to save the school now first of all i don't have an issue with teach first um any kind of recruitment is great but it did cause resentment secondly um having those teach first in the school saved us as a school because recruitment retention was so horrific um that we needed something we needed an influx of teachers and thirdly they were incredible i'd say all 20 of the teach first that came in were incredible in terms of the work ethic in terms of their um creativity their drive um yeah and that they say i'm yeah they saved the school because we we're on the verge of being shut down because we were rubbish. It's <laughs> simple as that. Um, so, but I, don't, I can't remember where I was going with that. But yes, so we we're a deprived area. And I do understand that sometimes you do need to helicopter in uh, people. But this idea that um, these areas don't already have the best teachers annoys me, really. Also, this idea of £3,000 to relocate. <laughs> My other half and I <laughs> had a good laugh about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, it would cost about a grand to get a removal van um, move everything up. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the same as London waiting was back in the year 2001, so 20-odd years ago. So it's not a lot of money to relocate somewhere and start a new life there i mean that would, would that even cover your rent rent the moving the rent and yeah it's not i don't think well teachers aren't in it for the money are they <laughs> you know they certainly wouldn't be with three grand three grand is going nowhere so that's not really an incentive um the other issue i have is that Rishi Sunak, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, his speech was all about tightening the belt and how there's not enough money out there and we know that they reduce universal credit, the benefits um, the poorest in our society get by £20 a week. Um, my other half thought it was £20 a month and I was like, no, it's a week. And his face was like, wow. Um £20 a week and, uh, and I was saying that it's interesting because my first ever Saturday job when I was 16 was in a supermarket, Gateways, <laughs> Gateways in Wanstead, uh, I think it's a summer, well it changed to a summer field, not sure where it is now, um, but my first ever wage packet and in those days they used to give you a little envelope with some money in it was £21. And I just remember thinking, wow, <laughs> that's huge. That's massive. Um, £20 is a lot, a lot of money a week. And if you think about how much food that would pay for a week, um, it, it's a lot of money. So you've got Rishi Sunak saying that we haven't got enough money, so we're going to take money from the poorest people. We're also going to increase national insurance payments which again hits 
the poorest people the most because an extra, I don't know how much it is, but let's say an extra £10 a week for um, people that are more affluent is nothing. Um, but even a fiver, £10, £15 a week for much poorer people, it's a huge amount. It's the difference between eating that night and not. So my issue is that Sinak's message seemed to be the opposite to Johnson's. So while Sunak is tightening the belt, taking money from the poor, basically taking money from the poor, um, you've got Boris Johnson saying, we're going to give money here, we're going to pour money into this, we're going to pour money into that, which makes me think, is there a magic money tree that I don't know about that they um, were talking uh, about Labour to? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Schools are being told to stockpile dry and tinned foods in the event of an ongoing shortage. Food supply company ISS have issued the warning following the continued lack of HGV drivers in the UK. It is thought supply chain issues could last until February, with school kitchens being asked to have a two-week backup supply of non-perishable food products as a contingency plan. Education unions are pushing for the reinstatement of mask policies across schools. The latest statistics show that 1 in 15 children in school years 7 to 11 are estimated to have had COVID in the last seven days the highest rate of positivity for any age group. Unions feel this leaves secondary schools particularly vulnerable. No action has been taken, but the new education secretary did not rule out the return to masks in classrooms. At a conference this week, Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi said there were not enough blackhead teachers working in English schools. He said he thinks it is critical that teaching is an inclusive profession where leadership teams reflect their communities. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News.
Welcome back. So we've been talking about a number of things today. Uh, we're talking about Black History Month. Um, is it needed anymore? We've been talking about um, Boris Johnson and what he's been saying about this £3,000 for the best teachers, in inverted commas, to go to uh, more deprived areas where they where they need these teachers. Um, the other question I have is, who decides that they're the best? How does that work? I mean, quite a lot of these policies, you, know, you just wonder, what are they backed up with? Is it just rhetoric? Is it just stuff they're saying? I don't know, because how... I mean, deciding a teacher is brilliant, is quite often subjective uh, in many schools, in other schools... Know, people look at results is it is it results that make you the best is it the engagement of the students i mean what is it what is it that makes you the best teacher so um and also it's it's a lot of pressure <laughs> it's a lot of pressure on those teachers that are being uh, helicoptered into deprived areas to perform really isn't it so yeah so what um what we talk what else have we been talking about? We've been talking about um yes, this the difference between what the Chancellor of the Exchequer has been saying compared to the Prime Minister, what they've been saying. So it, it for me it doesn't add up. I mean it just doesn't add up, you know, all this money the Prime Minister is talking about spending compared to what the Chancellor is saying, how we need to um, tighten our belts, which basically means poor people need to um, tighten their belts. Now, I'm going to have a look at the headlines. Now, waiting for um, Fiona Miller. She'll be in the studio in about five minutes. So um, I'm going to look at the headlines now. Headlines, we've got gas price clashes, the NHS staff face waiting list abuse. Is my internet gone down? I mean, now my phone isn't working. Oh, okay. Um, oh, yes, there seems to be an issue between two departments, as if between um, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, and... Uh, the Treasury, there seems to be a bit of um, an, a clash between the two because Kwasi Kwarteng said um, he was speaking with Mr Sunak, the Chancellor, to get support for factories, firms, but a Treasury official told Sky News, this is not the first time the Business Secretary has made things up in interviews. <laughs> to be... <laughs> To be crystal clear, the Treasury are not involved in any talks. No, it's not the first, is it? It's not the only one either that's just blatantly made stuff up. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the £20 reduction in universal credit. There's the hike in national insurance uh, payments per month. And now... There's an issue with, well, there's an energy crisis. So you kind of wonder how people are going to heat their homes. 
and stay warm this winter and we're apparently we're getting um an arctic blast from i'm hoping i'll be in spain <laughs> by the time that comes i don't do well in the freezing cold um yeah i there's supposed to be an arctic blast coming over probably from the Ural Mountains. I always wondered where they were. Right, the Telegraph. Uh, Treasury slaps down Kwarteng in energy row. I think the civil service must be so fed up of ministers just hearing policies, um, civil service hearing policies on the news um, or in papers um, and just hearing yeah blatant lies what it sounds like so they must be pretty fed up now <clears throat> so ah, oh, bless boris johnson is on holiday again i have never known any prime minister to have so many holidays it's unbelievable i mean you wouldn't believe that there was a global pandemic and we're having a um economic crisis and and shortages to the point that i mean you heard on teachers talk radio news that schools are being asked by food suppliers to stockpile two weeks worth of food um we're at that stage but bless boris he needs a break uh he's on holiday and where is he he's at a luxury holiday it um it's a luxury holiday at the home of a mega rich pal he made a lord. And this is at a point when we've got a serious energy crisis issue. Uh, right, okay, Daily Express, stark warning, get used to higher food bills. Okay. Um, Heinz boss Miguel... Patricio, Patricio has warned that the cost of essential items would rise and customers would just have to get used to it. That's nice. Um, a typical family of four could be £1,800 worse off by the end of the year, the Centre for Economic and Business Research estimates. Wow. I mean, that is about... Quick maths. 20 odd pounds a month for people if you include the national insurance hike plus 20 pounds taken away from universal credit and what people don't uh, many people don't realize is that the majority of people on universal credit are working so they are the working poor so national insurance the um, universal credit 20 pounds taken away and now they're saying that food prices are going to rise. That's probably about the equivalent of about £50 a week. And I'm probably giving quite a conservative, small c um, estimate on that. £50 a week um, that the poor are worse off. And why am I talking about this on Teachers Talk Radio? Because you're you're teaching children of the poor um the children that you're teaching are probably coming into school hungry because they haven't had breakfast 
Um, the only decent meal they'll have is at school. Um, when they get home, they may not have a meal. I mean, this is why Marcus Rashford seems to be doing a, a hell of a lot more than um, this government are doing. And that is absolutely, um, well, it's scary. Uh, Fiona is in the studio, so you're welcome to call in now. And especially when um, the Ofsted chief a few weeks ago said, oh, schools uh, spent too much time trying to feed the children uh, instead of teaching them. You think, well, the government isn't feeding them. (laughs) The government isn't feeding the children. And it's another conversation I was having with someone the other day that when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, if it was this, I mean, things were rough then, but if it was this government, I wouldn't have made it to university. I I wouldn't have made it to my A-levels, really. Um, there's no way I would have been able to become a teacher. There's no way I would have got on the um, housing ladder I mean, coming from a really deprived background and neighbourhood, we would have been stuffed. My parents, both my parents worked at factories and um, the idea that £20 a week would have been taken away and food prices rising, so it would be the equivalent of about £50 a week. We would have, I mean, we were already, already struggling, but it would have been very difficult for us to have food on the table very difficult. Okay, it's 8.02. We've got Fiona Miller in the studio, so if you could call in. Fiona Miller is a British journalist and campaigner on education and parenting issues. She's a former advisor to Cherie Blair and special advisor to Tony Blair. Fiona contributes to The Guardian and the Local Schools Network website and is a school governor. So whenever you're ready, you can call in. Now, we've been, um, I've kind of mentioned the political party conferences. The National Association of Head Teachers put forward an educational blueprint for the future, which urges policymakers to focus on seven key areas. Number one, prioritising early years funding and support. Number two, Improving support for mental health and well-being. Three, investing in the teaching profession. Four, providing targeted academic support for pupils who need it. Five, expanding extracurricular provision. Six, investing in technology. And seven, removing unnecessary accountability and bureaucracy. 
So if you've been listening or keeping tabs on the party, um, the political, um, the political uh, conferences. Sorry, I'm slightly distracted because I know Fiona's in the studio and yes, calling in. Okay, great. Um, if you've been paying attention to the uh, political party conferences, did any of the policies come up in from these seven? Fiona Miller. Hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah, welcome back. So, what's going on? Well, pretty much the same as going on, same as it was going on last time. Um, I suppose, yeah. which is sort of COVID seems to have dwarfed everything else, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I think we're, a bit, you know, it's quite hard to move the dial on education policy at the moment when everybody's well, per partly because presumably everybody in school is sort of fixated on trying to be normal when we know there are thousands and thousands of children are being infected. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, obviously there are other bigger political issues probably for the political parties. So I don't think the arguments about education are as high profile as they would have been, say, 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Yet Boris Johnson made a speech um, and the key sound bites, build back better. I, I honestly don't know what that means. Uh, no, build back better. No, I don't think, I think, I mean, I think we assume that he basically deals in sort of narrative and slogans rather than yeah. substance. There was something about paying teachers in maths and physics to go to certain areas. I mean, yeah. I think that's been tried before and look, it's a small token, but I mean, you know, it hasn't proved to be that effective before. And very often teachers go to those areas and they just don't stay. That's mm. the problem. Yeah, uh, you need people to stay and move up the leadership ladder and become the heads of the future. Yeah, yeah, and like you say, three thousand pounds is nothing. Yeah, nothing. It's it's nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I I just also he talked about skills, 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 and I got the impression he's just nicked that from Tony Blair and education, education, education. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the whole skills agenda in this high-wage, high-skill economy, I mean, there's a total mismatch between the way our education system works and skills because we've really downgraded practical and technical subjects in the past 10 years in favour of academic subjects. Mm. And, well, education is generally probably underfunded, but further education, which is probably where the investment would need to go to have a, a different sort of level of skilled economy, Mm. Is, is massively underfunded and I don't think you've got the people to teach some of this, these skills subjects. I mean, it's well, it, there's such a big gap, yawning gap between what's needed and what he talks about. I just don't see how it's going to happen. Mm. Don't see how, I mean, the, the, you know, the high status option for most young people now is to go to university and study an academic subject. Mm. Um, yeah. And then what? Yeah, and it's, it isn't to take up a vocational or practical pathway um mm. although they're becoming more popular but still not nearly as popular and until you until you address that issue then you're not going to get this high skilled work, yeah I don't think. it's interesting because the association of employment and learning providers who 
are all about FE and skills. They said they were heartened by the government's new focus on level two rather than level three, as Mm. around nine million adults have less than basic maths and English. Mm. So this would be a good starting point because Mm. they said that it was difficult to um, talk about that agenda, the level two, rather than level three. I know, but you're talking about quite basic skills there, aren't you? Mm. We yeah. talk, the sort of the sort of high skilled economy he's talking about, you'd have to interest people in in a, in totally different ways of thinking about education. I think from a much earlier age than than we do at the moment. I mean, ever since mm-hmm. Michael Gove came in and talked about facilitating subjects to get to Oxford and Cambridge, you know, and studying mm-hmm. Latin, I think young people have felt that those are the things that are valued. Things like history. I mean, they're not that they're to be, to be sneered at. And I've got a degree in economics and economic history, so. Mm. And I love history, but I mean, you know, you want to be, you want to be people to be innovative and experimental, and mm. you know, if you're going to be more productive, you've got to be doing things much more efficiently, not not sitting around writing essays. Yeah, and I suppose it's you know, since Michael Gove was in 2010, and if we're looking at 11 years later. Um, we've got all kinds of shortages of certain professions, p- partly because of Brexit, but also because of this policy of pushing people towards the pushing young people towards the academic mm. areas. I think so. And you've got, you know you're getting rid of BTEX and introducing these um, T levels, but you haven't really got enough people to teach them, and you haven't got the tie up with business to provide the work experience i mean i just think it hasn't been it just hasn't been thought through so what he says when you talk about what he says what he says sounds absolutely wonderful mm. but i think deliver it, delivering it will be completely different mm. yeah yeah i think we're a long way off from say the german mm. education system where they've got different routes haven't they yeah absolutely but i mean they do divide people up in a more slightly more brutal way but they value <laughs> they value technical and practical education in a way yeah. that we don't yet in this country. Yeah. And that's partly to do with the history of education and people like from Boris Johnson's background have traditionally always gone to Oxford and Cambridge and, and studied subjects like classics, which, you know, aren't going to get you very far in a high-skilled economy. I've got a degree, in, uh, A-level in Latin, so, I, you know, it's very interesting, but I don't think I found yeah. it particularly useful. Well, my degree was in um, history and classics. <laughs> Again, interesting, but I I wouldn't push that on young people today. Um, And and that's something that I've said before, and and I said a bit earlier as well, that if I was 16, 17 today, I'm not sure I would have gone to university. I don't think that would have been the idea of being in that much debt. Well, I wouldn't have been able to go because it was the grant that enabled me to go. Yeah, but I mean, more people do go now, don't they? And I mean, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Um, but, you know, what are they going to be studying there and who are the people who are going to teach them and where is the practical work experience going to come from? Mm. Just yeah. To, and, you know, is it, related, is it related to the needs of the economy and the area in which they live? I think there are so many things that need to be thought about. But, I mean, to go back to my original point, the way the education system works, that is not what's being discussed in schools. Mm. It's not being discussed between schools and colleges and their local economies, really, in the way that it should be. Yeah. So that was that was the Tories, anyway. I just think it's it feels <laughs> like there's a parallel universe in his head to the yeah. one that actually exists in the real world. Yeah, yeah. How about Labour? What stood out to you? 
Well, their obviously standout policy was about abolishing charitable status or, or no, charging, yeah, abolishing charitable status for private schools and charging uh, VAT on uh, school fees. Um, mm. Was it business rates? Something. VAT, I think. And therefore, they would have more money out of that to invest in other parts of the state education system. Mm. So I think that's all quite a good thing, but I, it, it, it's fairly peripheral. It doesn't ra- It wouldn't raise that much money. Um, no. But it's a bit headline grabbing, and I think most people mm-hmm. do feel that private schools aren't charities, and indeed they aren't, in my view, they aren't charities because they provide a luxury education for a tiny section of the population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a few, I mean, I've heard of um, some private schools that are uh, allowing their facilita- facilities to be used by state schools in the area. Yeah, but that, yeah. Is, that isn't charitable activity. No. <laughs> and anyway that's not even true that isn't even true i mean i did look at this once i mean a lot of them allow their facilities to be used but they Mm. allow them to be used by letting them to clubs who then charge fees to do swimming lessons or you know gymnastics lessons or whatever and then they give these bursaries to kids who are academically talented so you have to pass a test to get the bursaries and so you know, the average child on a bursary is in a, an income, a family with an income of about £40,000 a year they, they aren't for very poor children they don't yeah. take the, they don't take children on free school meals they don't take the children who are eligible for the pupil premium so they're not charities I mean they may have been set up in that way hundreds of years ago but they're not operating like that now mm. yeah um what about uh, the other part? I mean, the Green Party haven't had their conference yet, have they? So how about the Liberal Democrats? I can't even think of one thing that stood out to me from that conference, unfortunately. <laughs> um, not, in, not in terms of education policy anyway. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah. what I meant at the beginning. You know, I think there's nothing that's really going to shift the dial at the moment because everybody's mm. just so fixated on, on the impact of COVID on schools and obviously the narrowing, the widening gap. And that a lot of that is really about investment. You could argue about how you spend it, but unless somebody's going to say we're going to put forward the money that Kevin Collins said schools needed, you know, the thirteen billion or fifteen yeah. billion, yeah. Um, you know, you're just going to be shuffling around this very limited amount of resources between different activities, mm. different people. Yeah. So, what what do you feel needs to happen next? Well, I mean, I think there are some big areas of reform that we need to get back to. We need to look at why we've still got this massive gap between children of certain backgrounds, and that's partly to do with the hierarchy of schools and mm. you know, opportunities that are open to some children that aren't open to others. Um, and I think you've really got to think about the regional disparities in education in this country. And I think when Johnson talks about levelling up, I'm not sure he has actually thought through what that means in education. Mm. Um because, you know, in some of these communities aren't as deprived as, say, London, mm. where there has high deprivation but much higher educational achievement as well. So there's something about the culture and the way people feel about education and aspirations, how it works in practice that needs addressing. And that's very, mm. very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because, like, like you say, I, I worked in West London in some really deprived areas. But the communities that the children came from really highly uh, respected education, felt education is power, it will 
bring you out of poverty. Um, I've moved down to Dorset, which is much more affluent. And for a brief stint, I was working in some schools in the area. And that sense of drive wasn't there. They yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, they didn't seem to have the drive to do well, to get on, um, to learn. <laughs> it was just just not respected in the same way, which was a bit of a which is a bit of a shock for me after working in London. Yeah, so we, I mean, it's one of the things I'm looking at at the moment. I'm trying to write something about this. Is about whether these red wall seats are really as deprived as people say they are. Mm. Actually, that there there is higher deprivation in many other urban parts of the country, which may not have now have Conservative MPs, so they're obviously irrelevant to John, Boris Johnson, but um, or may not be winnable. But the fact is that that there is higher deprivation, and in some ways, kids are do, so in some senses, kids are doing better there. So there's something mm. else going on that I think we need to be talking about as well. But I I think it will be it is complicated. Mm. Uh, yeah. In short, I think he's, you know, he's very good at telling a story, but it's quite a simplistic agenda when it comes to policy. Yeah, yeah. And, mm, I mean, I think about, you know, with the Labour government, before they came into power, it was very clear um, education, 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 and it wasn't just uh, Blunkett, David Blunkett talking about education. You had the, Tony Blair pushing it as well. It was incredibly high on the agenda and the amount of changes that went through and I mean it was ideal for me because I started teaching in year 2000 and that's when they introduced the bursaries again I couldn't have gone into teaching without that bursary so it just feels like you need something like that that kind of fuel injection now what to get people into teaching? Well, there's, I yeah. think there's a problem at the moment because one of the on the side effects of COVID is it has a lot of people did uh, have considered turning to teaching because there was a lot of uncertainty in the rest of the labour market, as, it, as was the case after the 2008 crash. You yeah. know, when the economy is vulnerable, people go, turn to those sorts of professions. But I think when things pick up again, then they come out of teaching and go back into other more highly paid professions. Um, so we'll have to see. But I mean, I think there probably will still be problems with certain subject areas, hence mm -hmm. the £3,000 you know, bribe to go to... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel like much of a bribe. No, really. no. Yeah. What would you do if you had a magic wand? What would I do? I think I'd probably do, I think I said this last time I was on, I think I'd probably do something quite <clears throat> quite radical with the qualifications at secondary school, mm. you know, get rid of GCSEs and A-levels and have a final sort of baccalaureate type qualification at 18. That 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 that, that um, sort of disguise the 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 dividing lines between ac academic and technical, so everybody would leave with the same diploma, but it could be an academic diploma, or it could be a vocational diploma, mm. and open up uh, that whole period in education to some other experiences beyond just taking exams. So that yeah. you know, you would value things like project work and you know, practical work or art or drama or music. Yeah. You know, in the way that the IB does. And it, wouldn't, it would still be academically rigorous, but you could do an academic, a vocational pathway and still end up with the same qualification as somebody who did an academic pathway. Equally respected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, because like 15 years ago, I mean, the school I was in, we had 
the BTEC routes, we had the academic routes, and both were equally respected in that school. And the kids, there wasn't that sense of, oh, they're the academic kids. I mean, I think that in terms of self-esteem, that would affect children as well because, of the, oh, I did BTEC, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But um, I think that is that has been widened further and further, this idea of, oh, academic and university is best. Hello. Oh, hello. Sorry, my mic went then. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So the idea that academic is the best route. So, um, okay. So we do need to um, support young people into different areas. But part of that, again, it comes back to recruitment retention, doesn't it? Because we, you know, I know there are schools I've worked in where they ended up closing down the food tech area because we couldn't get food technology teachers mm, mm. what what do you feel is the answer to what to recruitment and retention crisis that we have well i think we've got to make it a more attractive profession a higher status profession more highly paid more highly valued and, and then make it somewhere that doesn't make people feel that they're burnt out after two or three years and that's mm. probably a lot to do with Ofsted and the way exam systems work and the pressure that's put on staff by head teachers who are terrified they're going to lose their jobs unless they, you know, get the right results every year. But mm. I mean, that's, you know, again, I think if you had a look at the qualification system and the way accountability works and the way exams work and so on, you could start to make a difference there. But we're just going round and round in the same loop now, really, aren't we? People have yeah. had a couple of years off without any exams. And did the world fall apart? Well, no, not exactly. No. <laughs> Yeah. Like, well, I'm going to have to go in a minute. Sorry, okay. I've, got to, I've got to do another call about eight thirty, so I've got to prepare for it. All but right. but that, okay. those would be my thoughts anyway. So yeah. I, I think the um, I don't think the party conferences set anybody alight. Certainly, no. with, um, <laughs> new ideas. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. Okay. It's a pleasure. Okay. Speak soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Talking to Fiona Miller, former special advisor to Tony Blair, um, educational campaigner, school governor. Um, a little bit depressing that these school, uh, these uh, party conferences didn't really set us alight. Um, there was nothing excitable in there. Labour were talking about. Uh, removing charitable status from private schools. Um, that's not going to make a massive difference to young people today. Um, Labour talked about boosting the arts and digital funding and offering better careers guidance to children. Um, but again, it's how and what and all that it's just it just feels like a lot of words at the moment lots and lots of words coming out um 
they're talking about making labor's talking about making work experience compulsory i thought it was <laughs> is it just me was it is is work experience not compulsory i thought it was and teaching students about pensions mortgages and contracts um i don't know I, i'm sorting out my pension at the moment i i can just about cope I don't think 16-year-old me would look at that and go, what? That is like when I'm close to death. Why do I need to know? But then maybe that's it. They do need to know that actually you need to be thinking about this early. The earlier you think about it, the better. Um, what else? Mortgages and young people today, the idea of them getting a mortgage without any help from their parents, I think yeah i think that would be a difficult one and contracts contracts i agree with that could easily slot into the citizenship um curriculum because i remember talk, um teaching about the sale of goods act and getting young people to understand their rights and their responsibilities and so on so with contracts i think that i can see where that would slot in pensions mortgage I, I just, I don't know, when they get to, I don't know, I really don't know, is that is that a priority? But it just, yeah, so Labour's policies just seem a bit superficial, really. Um, I suppose I'd be happy, like Fiona says, if there was this massive revolutionary overhaul of the whole system, ban Ofsted, or actually reform Ofsted, um and turn them more into a coaching facility so they go into schools not to judge them not to monitor uh and you know interrogate people um more a case of where we at where do you want to be how we're going to get there just more of a kind of yeah i mean that would be fantastic wouldn't it i mean i did have one ofsted inspector that he actually, um, when I was responsible for teaching and learning, he was, he, it felt like he was my coach over those two days, uh, telling me, uh, you know, in observations, what the, what I need to be looking at, um, telling me, you know, just various things, the conversations we had were brilliant. That was one Ofsted out of God knows how many, I've been through in my in my career as a teacher and as a leader, but if all Ofsteds could be like that, it would be far more valuable to schools and help them improve rather than put pressure on um, of judging and evaluating and saying you're not good enough. I mean, I remember one woman from the DFE just yelling at me once, yelling at me in the corridor because I wouldn't make uh, a really good English teacher. I wouldn't force her to become a head of department. I was like, but she doesn't want to. You should be. I mean, I was like seven months pregnant at the time and it was just the last thing I needed. I don't, I just, it was so unprofessional. Anyway, um, I really should have put in a complaint about her, but I was pregnant and vulnerable <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't the time of the yeah I just didn't I couldn't yeah I couldn't cope with that so um yeah we've been having some interesting conversations this morning we've been discussing Black History Month we've been talking about the political parties in the UK and their 
I use the term loosely educational policies. Uh, Fiona Miller, former special advisor to the Blairs, uh, has been in talking about her views on the political conferences. I think she said it all with when I asked her about the Liberal Party. Uh, she said nothing stood out. I actually went on their website last night because nothing stood out for me either, just to see, okay, what is their policy so I can read up on it so I know what I'm talking about today. Um, I couldn't find anything. <laughs> it said conference update and and it was a beautiful graphic that you can click on but there were all these things and not one of them said education I think one of them said something about well-being but that was general um and so that, that's pretty highly disappointing that the Liberal Party wouldn't didn't have anything uh to do with it I know the Green Party are later this month. I think it's like the 28th of October. I, I may be completely wrong there, so don't quote me. Um, but they are later. But I, I'd like to see what they do. A lot of people I know vote Green. But that's because I'm in Dorset, a very conservative area. Uh, there's no point voting Labour. There's Nobody wants to vote <laughs> the Liberals uh, since their debacle of being part of the um, coalition in 2010. So uh, people are opting for green. So it'll be interesting to see what the greens do. So coming up, we've got Tabitha. She's on at nine o'clock. I always love listening to Tabitha's shows. I always chuckle out loud. Uh, later on today, we've got Rebecca Ricketts. We've got a lot of shows. It's amazing how many um, um, hosts we have on Teachers Talk Radio. If you've missed any shows, you can go on the website, www.ttradio.org slash listen back. If there's anything specific you want to... Um, listen up on um for example if you want to hear about incels just type in incels into the search um area and shows you'll see uh, a show from me and a show from lizzie swan talking about incels so you can listen back now let's hope let's hope that the final jingle works because <laughs> my opening one didn't work I'm Mal Krishnasamy. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Live for the week, not just the weekend. No, <laughs> that didn't work. Ugh. I'm going to end on... Have a great week, everyone.